All right, scripture reading today will be from Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. Matthew 6, 7 through 15. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Good morning. Good to see everybody out today. Um, I want to echo what two or three have already said about Hope and Francisco. So great to see y'all. Praise God that they're that that Hope is doing better and they're back with us. We love y'all so much. Every person in this church is special, um, as essential as uh, you know any body part is to the body, which is what uh, the Apostle Paul said. And we really mean that and can't wait to get back together more, you know, tangibly, palpably, I mean, physically together the way God made us, not just. Faces on screens. We're we're grateful for that when it you know when we have to because we, we want to keep each other safe as well. But we're praise God moving in a good direction so far, and um, looking forward to things getting you know triangulating back toward normal. So we've been talking about how to handle conflict since uh, conflict is um, uh, the unresolved conflict anyway is one of the chief obstacles to genuine fellowship, and fellowship is our theme for 2021. We love one another because God first loved us. Uh, that's one aspect of loving in the way God has loved us is to love, you know, begins inside uh, the church family. One of the things that could throw a wrench in the works is, is unresolved conflict, mishandled conflict. And much of that conflict, it results from one of us sinning against another, committing an offense against the other. And these kinds of offenses are going to happen. They're bound to happen in all relationships of any depth or duration. When two people tell me, yeah, we've been together 40 years and we've never had a fight, I kind of, my first thought is, uh, it, it, do you have a relationship? I mean, are, are, the, are the gears even, in, you know, meshing? Because friction comes when things are close. If gears are spinning out here 25 miles apart, there's no, you know, there's no friction. Um, on the other hand, I know I'm, I'm, you know, part of it could be, a large part of it could be me. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, how we respond to these conflicts is going to shape the quality of our connections, our relationships, our fellowship. The last week, we talked about how I respond, how you respond when we are ourselves the offender, right? And the correct response, as we saw, was a posture of penitence, as we, you know, it was our catch-all term which means owning our wrongdoing. It means contrition and empathy for the person we've wronged and resolving to do better in active, you know, tangible ways. Well, today's question is how do I respond when sinned against? We're coming at it from the other side of the offense. When I'm the one who has been wronged, last week was when I'm the wrongdoer, how do I respond to the sins uh, that are committed against me? And the, the short answer and what we're going to focus on today is what we're going to call the way of forgiveness, the way of forgiveness. In the Sermon on the Mount, which has been our jumping off point for all these lessons, Jesus presents uh, as one of the elements in this sermon, a model prayer, what's often been called the Lord's Prayer. 
And one of the lines in his prayer shows the importance of fellowship in his kingdom. He says in Matthew 6, verse 12, this is how you should pray. Father, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. So we're asking God to forgive us for our sins, but reflexively, immediately, we're reminded that, oh yeah, we're, we're to be regularly, routinely, as a matter of course, right? Not some special super Christian thing that you read about, you know, in an article that some Quakers did on one occasion or some Mennonites did on one occasion. No, this is like Christianity 101. It's in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Something makes the cut of the Sermon on the Mount. It's just basic kingdom living. And he says, we're to be people who forgive our debtors. Well, what is forgiveness? I mean, you could talk about this. I've, I've read a, a couple of books on it lately that are dense. I'm not even through with them. They're, they're really dense theological meditations um, by different people who, who have been in, in situations in the world where forgiveness and reconciliation and the opposite estrangement and alienation and per perennial conflict and the spiral of, of violence are real things on, on levels that most of us only read about honestly. We may have felt them in our own relationships, and the dynamics are the same, but these, these, um, these theological works, you know, all based on texts in the Bible, um, basically boil forgiveness down to two, two fundamental elements, one of which is negative, one of which is positive. So what is forgiveness? Well, negatively, it is identifying the wrong, and this may sound strong, but condemning it as wrong. You forgiveness, by definition, identifies something as a wrong and says that is actually a wrong. That's an offense. That's a, you, some hurt has been afflicted and inflicted. That's, that's one. That's the negative side of it. The positive side of repentance is then releasing the wrongdoer from the debt of their wrong. Okay? Identifying the wrong and condemning it as wrong but also then releasing the wrongdoer from the debt of their wrong. That's basically what forgiveness is. Though the person deserves to bear the burden of their wrong, you freely lift the burden off of them. In that sense, forgiveness is a gift. It's a gift that the person uh, who has been wronged gives back to the wrongdoer. So I want to examine for a few minutes this morning this way of forgiveness that is so central to living in the kingdom of heaven. And we first must acknowledge um, that the way of forgiveness is a difficult way. It is a difficult path to travel. And we'd be playing games with ourselves and telling ourselves nice little stories, you know, the kinds of platitudes that often get told in churches, honestly. Some of the worst offender at, at, at reducing everything to nice little neat things because we want it all to be neat. We can't handle the, the dissonance. Problem that we step outside and we're in real life. <laughs> And so it, it's, it's, it's more, we're, we're manning up and being more real and mature or womaning up, as the case may be, to, to just acknowledge diff, things like difficulties. Then we're really getting down to business a little bit. So I like to do that. I know that's kind of get, makes us squirm a bit, but I often do this with a sermon. I don't know how many of my sermons, the first point is the difficulty of whatever, right? Earlier, we looked at Matthew 18, 15, where Jesus had said, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So reconciliation, the restoration of fellowship, fraternity, brotherhood, sisterhood, family uh, connection can be restored if we, when wronged, address that wrong with the wrongdoer. So Jesus says, do that. If he listens to you, good things are going to happen. 
Last week, we talked about if we listen, you know, the other side of it. If they listen, we gain them back as a brother, this text says. Presumably, they repent, and then we forgive them. Now, you may remember that a few verses later in Matthew 18, a few verses down from this text, Peter, who was in the audience when Jesus says this, asks a question of Jesus. In Matthew 18, 21, Peter comes up and says to Jesus, Lord, he's been, you know, ruminating on this, this uh, teaching of Jesus about, you know, restoring after, after somebody sins against you. And he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Peter asked the question about the extent to which this will apply. Uh, you know, to what degree are we talking here? It's a really a good question, isn't it? This is not easy forgiveness isn't. So how much forgiving are we signing up for here when we become disciples of Jesus? And Jesus's answer is that the standard of the kingdom, not the world, the standard of his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is not just seven times, which is a lot, but 77 times. I want y'all to think about that. Think about somebody, can you even think of a, a, a person who has wronged you in the same way 77 times. I don't think his point is to say, you do need to have a clicker. You need to count. On 78, you give him a right hook. That's not the point. It's that there's just kind of no limit. This is the way you operate. You are a forgiver, just like God is a forgiver. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I mean, you know, what if, I don't know, I'm, I'm up to like seven or eight or nine right now, you know, meltdowns over the tech. And Corey and Nick and Randy are back there just you know, pulling off, as I said, every week, minor miracles. And they've, it's really pretty amazing. What if, you know, if they stopped forgiving me and showing me mercy for my frustration when this doesn't work right? You know, we, we all need that because there's going to be friction in relationships. And Jesus says the kingdom means forgiving up to 77 times. So to say that genuine forgiveness to the extreme degree that Jesus requires of us is difficult, might be the understatement of uh, my life, right? Needless to say, many of us need forgiveness for not forgiving as Jesus requires. There's a sin right there. I ain't going up to 77 times, never done that in my life, never come close. You do it a second time, and we're going to have some problems. Isn't, isn't that how a lot of us operate? We went through that. We talked about this. Okay, that's one. <laughs> so you get another one, and another one, and another one, and another 77 times. Let's, let's let that be real. You know, uh, it's difficult. We can always play the card of, well, we're talking. This, that sounds great, but the real world. Let me ask you something. Do you think the Son of God the Word incarnate, who created everything. John 1 says there's nothing that exists that did not come into existence by Him. He created the, the real world. Do you think He doesn't know what makes the real world work? And Christians sometimes are the first ones to say that in the real world. We just dismiss this. Do you think it felt real to Jesus when He was hanging on the cross? 
forgiving us. I probably felt those nails felt pretty real. So if we're going to reject this, let's be mature enough and honest enough to just say, I, you know, I, I reject that. I'll take my chances. Let's don't play games and act like this doesn't really apply to our real on-the-ground relationships. That's what he's talking about here. 77 times. Man, that is difficult. Let's be honest. Forgiveness. Uh, Miroslav Volf, I've been reading, I, I know I've quoted him two or three times. There's another book he, he's written called Free of Charge, which is all about the dynamics of repentance and forgiveness, which I've been working through the last week or so as well. And again, this is the guy who grew up, you know, he's eight years of his life, he was imprisoned by the, uh, what was the former Yugoslavian kind of Gestapo, um, you know, when during the, the days when the Cold War was breaking down and Yugoslavia was breaking into all these, you know, Serbia, Croatia, and all these Balkan states that are about the size of a county, each of which uh, had different religions and languages and history, and they were just been at odds forever. And, you know, it's the, the, the powder keg of Europe, it's been called by historians, where World War I started and so on. And they all, they all know they're right and been, have been treated unjustly by the other people, right? You've got Orthodox, Catholic, Muslim, Protestant, and then the atheistic communist state of Yugoslavia, all of that. And, and it, poor little Miroslav Volf is caught up in all that. So he knows what he's talking about when it comes to forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation and vengeance and vendettas and the whole business. He wrote this book on forgiveness and repentance called Free of Charge. And in it, he, he says, and he, I've seen him say this on, on spe in speeches over the years too, that one reason that we feel such inner difficulty with truly forgiving is that forgiveness goes against the typical logic of our world, the way... Uh, the way everybody thinks, the way we typically think. There's a sense in which he says that forgiveness is an irrational act. It doesn't fit the normal rationality of, of how human beings operate. And the reason for that is that forgiveness is a pure gift. It's an actual pure gift in the purest sense of the terms. Now think about gift giving. We've all given gifts before, presents at Christmas, birthday presents, you know, no reason. I, I think a lot of you put gifts, whatever it is, uh, businessmen giving gifts, you know, it's a tax deduction sometimes and so on. When our giving is truly a gift, pure and simple, a gift, and by that I mean we're expecting absolutely nothing in return of any kind, explicit or implicit, overt or subtle, nothing, just here it is. Enjoy this. It's not operating according to the usual logic, to, you know, according to which humans normally function. And think about a lot of the gifts that are given. They're not really gifts, are they? You're kind of nice. You're being nice. But how many gifts in the corporate business world are purely speaking not just gifts? There is a hope, maybe even an expectation, that there'll be something in return. I, I will land your business. Well, that's about you right? Better than not giving one and just begging the person or putting them in a headlock, I guess, but it's still kind of about you. Or maybe you're giving a gift to another person and you're hoping to effect a certain behavior on their part. That's also not completely pure. There, there's a certain amount of self-interest there. Maybe you're trying to put the other person in your debt by gaining the moral high ground, right? You do something nice, but you kind of really want to be up here so that they're now in your debt. That's about you. Maybe it's mixed. Maybe there's a little niceness about, you know, sort of just selfless interest in the other person. But a lot of what we call gifts aren't purely gifts. True gift giving 
has no strategy. There's no manipulative part. There's no string. There is no angle. It is just a gift. And as a gift, forgiveness is irrational from the world's standpoint, right? You're forgiving the very person who hurt you. Of all the people in the world, that's the individual who owes a debt to you, to use the language that Jesus uses in the, in the Lord's Prayer. Instead of demanding what is justly owed you, the payment of that debt, you forgive the person. And so forgiveness doesn't square up with our basic sense of what's rational. That makes it hard for us. What's more, extending forgiveness may even feel like we're enabling more injustice. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like we're just letting them off that easy? We're going to, in fact, in, encourage them to do it next time. They need to be taught a lesson. You know that logic. We feel like it's unjust on some level for them not to pay, to just forgive them. Let me say this, though, that in point of fact, however, forgiveness does not disregard justice. To forgive, and this is a common misconception, it is not to minimize the wrongness of the wrong. Forgiveness is anything but shrugging off wrong. But just get over it. It doesn't mean you become a zero, right? You felt the wrong, just get over it. Shrug it off. That, that is manifestly not what biblical forgiveness involves. It doesn't disregard injustice. Indeed, built into forgiveness is the naming and condemning of the wrong. That's why Jesus calls it a debt. Forgive us our debt. Do, do we owe a debt? If you owe a debt, you owe it. If you don't, you don't. Right? If I incur a debt, you either did or you didn't. And if there's a debt involved, then I owe something. And so forgiveness implicitly, by definition, built into it has this idea of the wrong is being acknowledged. It's being named and called a wrong, condemned, if you will. So it's calling out, by definition, the injustice that's been done. And still, if we're honest, we're going to find it difficult to obey. Especially we're going to find it difficult to obey this command of Jesus that we, we forgive 77 times. And this is especially the case when the magnitude of the pain that we're experiencing is heavy. In Rwanda in the 1990s, two sides... Two tribal, you know, true tribes in, in, involved in rivalry for eons past. I can't remember the names of the tribe, the Hutus and somebody. Um, starts with a T, but the word Tutsi role is coming. It's, it's the, I, I think it might be the Tutsis, or to, I don't mean to disparage it. I just, I, I didn't want to say it because it's, I did say it. Um, anyway, the two tribes, the Hutus and their rivals, both of whom, by the way, claim to be Christians, were slaughtering each other. In one span, 800,000 human beings, 800,000 were hacked to death in the span of 100 days. How do you forgive that? Or the child, nobody chooses what family they're born into, child who was abused repeatedly by their parent over the, all the years of their upbringing and they take that into the rest of their life. The spouse who made a vow to the other spouse to set herself or himself aside forever for the other person, and then that person betrays them with infidelity. 
There's a lot more we could talk about. Subtle and overt. But when it really hurts, it's difficult to walk the way of forgiveness, is it not? But we also have to recognize that forgiveness is the way of godliness. It may be the difficult path, but it's also the godly path. And I, I mean godly here, quote-unquote godly, by using that word, I, I'm intending it in two different senses. The first is this. Forgiveness is godly in terms of its source, where it comes from. Real forgiveness is going to originate with God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ties our forgiving of others back to God's forgiveness of us. This is just, he sort of assumes it. Pray then like this, Matthew 6, our Father in heaven, forgive us our debts as we forgiven our debtors. In other words, the ability to forgive others somehow connects to God's forgiveness of us. Those go together. It's all kind of uh, starting with what God does in initiating the good news of the gospel. That's who God is, and then we you know, our forgiving others' ability to do so is an outgrowth of that. So it, it goes back to God. The German-Jewish writer, uh, Hannah Arendt, who was, um, uh, became an American writer, kind of a public intellectual, probably one of the most influential intellectuals of the 20th century, um, when she was growing up in Germany, was imprisoned um, as a young adult by the Nazi Gestapo in the 30s. And subsequently, she wrote about a lot of all sorts of things, but wrote a lot about um, the Holocaust and, and uh, the ethics involved, the ability to forgive, and so on. And she wrote this. This is a Jewish writer. Quote, the discoverer of forgiveness in human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. Pretty astounding. Now, we might use a different verb than discoverer or noun than you know, to discover. Maybe we'd say invent or something like that. That quibble aside, Arendt was right to link forgiveness to Jesus. Jesus, the incarnate God. While on earth, he merely revealed at a specific point in history the grace, the gift-giving nature that had always been at the heart of God throughout time, from, from before time even began. And this gift-giving nature, so central to God's character, was evident in God's relationship with the whole business of wrongdoing and punishment and forgiveness. So I want to talk about that for a second. What's God's relationship with punishment for wrong and forgiveness? In the book, Free of Charge, Miroslav Volf debunks two false views of God and forgiveness, the matter of punishment versus forgiveness and so on. Two false views. One of them is what he calls the implacable judge. God is the implacable judge. He is just and his justice is perfect. He doesn't miss anything, not a thing, no matter how big or how small, whether it's public or no one knew but you, you thought God's going to get you. He's implacable. He is the perfect judge. All wrongdoing will be punished to the nth degree. He says that's one false, unbiblical view of God. If that's your view, that, that's it. You, you not got that from the Bible. 
That's what he argues. I think he's right. The second false view of God and punishment and forgiveness is that God is a kind of doting grandparent, Wolf says. Anybody relate? The doting grandparent who sees no evil in us no matter what we do. Right? Come up and slap me. Oh, what a, what a nice, you know, technique on the slap. Really hurting right now, but my, my grandchild can slap better than anybody. You know, it, it, there's no evil no matter what. You only ever affirm the wrongdoer. Only ever. That's it. That's all the person gets is affirmation. So implacable judge, false unbiblical view. Doting grandparent view of God, false unbiblical view. If God responded to evil and injustice and wrongdoing purely as the implacable judge and didn't miss a thing, and punished it all to the nth degree it deserved, that you and I and this whole world wouldn't make it to 5 p.m. before it, it and we would be punished to oblivion. There wouldn't be a creation. Martin Luther, the Protestant Reformation founder in many ways, started off as a Roman Catholic monk. You probably know this story, and just was so burdened with, with angst and guilt and fear for his eternal destiny, even while he's spending 24-7 in all the, the labor involved in becoming a monk in this monastery, uh, he was haunted by God and never felt like he could possibly stand before God, a just God, a just judge. And he, the two things that really bugged him were the, the great commands of Jesus. Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And those two words, all and as, haunted him. Because he's like, no matter what day I had, how, however dedicated I was, I never have a full 24-hour period where I have loved God with all my being. Never, not once. To love my neighbor as myself means there was never a time where I didn't treat my neighbor just like I would want to be treated. He says, I've never gone through a day like that. But if God responded as the doting grandparent, nobody ever really does a wrong. You're just going to be affirmed. We're going to shrug that off. You know what that means? That means that all the anguished cries for justice throughout world history, including the cries of those loved ones of the slaughtered 800,000 Rwandans, would go unanswered. They would fall on the deaf ears of a doting grandparent who couldn't call a wrong a wrong. So neither one of those works. Thankfully, neither one of them is biblically grounded. Instead, God takes a third path. He takes the path of forgiveness. He, A, condemns the wrong as an actual wrong. But then, in a miracle, he spares the wrongdoer. How do you do that? How do you condemn the wrong as an actual? You have committed injustice here. You really did hurt these people or that person. But I'm going, and you hurt me, but I'm going to relieve you of the burden of that debt. The only way you can do that is to have somebody else pay the debt. Otherwise, you're not just. Then you become, you're edging toward the doting grandparent. Right? And that doesn't, we know that doesn't work. It doesn't work when the doting grandparents' grandchildren punch somebody else in the face. That work, you know, it works in your own living room, sort of, though they might just trash your house. 
right? That's okay. That's okay. Let me sweep that. Let me sweep that. You just become milk toast. But when they punch somebody else who's somebody else, other, another doting grandparent's grandchild, then what? <laughs> it actually is wrong. There is wrong in the world. But we can't handle it. We can't, we can't, you know, you made the bed, you have to lie in it. We can't lie in the bed we've made. We can't handle it, if we're honest. And so God steps in and says, the debt will be paid. It's just, it's going to be paid by the one to whom it's owed. God takes our wrongs upon himself. Isn't this what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 19? In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. It's the only way you're ever going to get reconciliation is the trespass has to be dealt with. He's not going to count it against us. How? On, on what basis? Verse 21 tells us, for our sake, he made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, never did anything wrong, but we're going to put all the sins of you on him so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Another way to translate the word righteousness is justice. It often is translated justice, the Greek word. So the justice is settled. As Romans puts it, he becomes, he is just and the justifier in the act of Jesus going to the cross. Now, I want to quote a short quote here from uh, this book, Free of Charge by Wolf, because I think this is an important distinction to make. He says, God placed human sin upon God. So God takes your sins and puts them on himself. The one who was offended bears the burden of the offense. Christ is not some third party inserted between God and humanity to take care of human sin. He is the God who was wronged. But if the God who was wronged also carries the burden of the offense, isn't God acting like an indulgent grandparent? No, he says. God would be acting as an indulgent grandparent if God simply treated sin as if it were not sin. But God doesn't. God condemns the offense and bears the burden of it rather than simply disregarding it or placing it back on our shoulders. Praise God for that. There will be no forgiveness without God. Nobody else is going to think that way or act that way unless it's empowered by the divine. There's a reason the 17th century English writer Alexander Pope said to err is human, to forgive divine. But here's the rub. Everybody in this room, every human being is an erring human. But if you're a Christian, you're called to forgive like the divine. We can't just leave it right there. The is human to forgive divine. No, but Jesus says, act like the divine. Be like God in this way. Be godly. And that's the second sense of me using the word godliness, saying forgiveness is the way of godliness. Forgiveness is linked to godliness also in the sense that you and I are not living in a godly fashion if forgiveness isn't increasingly characterizing our response to those who wrong us. Again, Matthew 6, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus says, pray those words. Then he goes into a, set, a sort of slightly different subject, verse 13 in the black. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. Help us not to sin in the first place. I want you to notice something interesting here. He circles back to the point he made in verse 12 about us forgiving other people. It's almost like, I really, wait a minute. I'm not saying Jesus would forgive, go back. I, I don't know. Uh, 
human God, you know, Christological paradox, who knows those kind of questions. But it's for some reason, there's a lot of stuff in this Lord's Prayer. He doesn't circle back to any of the rest of it. What he circles back to is what he said in verse 12. For, oh, by the way, if you forgive other people their trespasses, your heavenly Father is going to forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, guess what? You're not going to be forgiven by the heavenly Father. Your sins are not dealt with. That alone should get our attention. It's the way of godliness. Thirdly, we try to be fast on this one. It's also the way of freedom. Learning how to forgive, going back to the fountain, the fountainhead of, of grace, God, is the key to freedom. Let me say this, reluctance to forgive, what do you think about this statement? Reluctance to forgive is often just a soft form of revenge. To me, the more I think about it. And we may go, not revenge, that's like a cowboy movie. You're walking in the saloon and shooting up the guy who killed your daddy back in 1832 or whatever. The theme of most movies, if they're action movies, is revenge. Um, but isn't reluctance to forgive just sort of a soft, more subtle form of that? We see the wrongs done to us in maximal terms, right? We get, oh boy, that person really wronged me. But the wrongs we've done to others, we see in the most minimal terms. So we retaliate. And we do it in a sophisticated way. We're not punching people. But we, we, we retaliate by being stingy with forgiveness. We're not truly releasing them from that debt they owe us. Remember, it is a debt um, that Jesus talks about in Matthew. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors. And we don't release them all the way from that debt, or we release them only with strings attached. Thinking that since we're not in the wrong, we kind of deserve to have the, the high ground. We deserve to be in control of the situation. But this power move is a pipe dream. It's a piece of fiction. It's a false hope. Refusing forgiveness, holding grudges, nursing the way that we were wrong doesn't empower us in the final analysis. What it actually brings is not empowerment, but enslavement. You want to walk around with a ball and chain of your own creation? You want to walk around in a mental prison, an emotional, psychological prison? You hang on to the wrongs people have done to you for decade after decade. Let that define you. Let that become your identity. You are not free. It's enslavement when people won't forgive one another. It's obviously enslaving for the one whose wrong is forever held over their head. Forgiveness is just a word at best. Of course I forgive him, but I don't forget. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Amen. Word to that. We have so many games we can play with this to get out of the 77 real release of debt. But it's also enslaving, not just for the one whose wrong is held over their head forever, but it's, it also enslaves the one who refuses to release their wrongdoer. You tell me, most of us know this, it takes a lot of energy to stay angry. 
It is, it is to hold on to a wrong, to have that vendetta. Boy, that, that will beat you down. And guess what? The other person will feel that your revenge or refusal to forgive them is unjust in turn, and they'll seek also in the name of their view of justice to exact their own revenge. And there you go. You're off on that spiral. Forgiveness is the only thing that can free us from this enslaving cycle of self-righteous revenge, whether it's explicit or implicit, you know, dropping bombs on another country or just turning the cold shoulder to somebody. It's all the same thing. It's a soft form of revenge. Remember Lamech from Genesis 4? We talked about a couple of weeks ago. His perfect revenge and the spiral of destruction and violence that it represents. Lamech said to his wives in Genesis 4, this is after the fall, after human sin has messed up Eden. He says, Adah and Zilah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man, killed him, because he wounded me. He scratched my elbow, so I slit his throat. Huh, I'm no idiot. I'm realistic. We'll see if he does that again. That's every movie, and that's honestly how a lot of us think most of the time. How we operate until we come to church and we hear, wow, we're not supposed to do that, but that doesn't seem real. Okay, now, this is real. This is real. The Bible's real. Jesus is real. The cross is real. Notice what he says. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is going to be 77-fold. In other words, I'm going to show you, I got my ducks in a row here. Nobody's getting one by on me. I will exact perfect vengeance. I will ensure perfect justice. We lionize people who do this, honestly. They're the heroes, protagonists in our movies. The problem with it is it's the 180 degree opposite of Jesus of Nazareth. 180, not kind of different. <laughs> Jesus comes along thousands of years later and he supplants perfect revenge with perfect forgiveness. Look at this. Lamech said, my revenge will be 77-fold. In other words, it's the Hebrew word for perfect, right? Variants of seven, multiples of seven, sevens. It's perfection, the ultimate. It's complete. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, how often am I supposed to forgive my brother after he sins against me? Seven times? Like all the way? And Jesus says, to emphasize it, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Isn't it interesting that that's exactly what Lamech said, but now we're talking about forgiveness, not revenge. Jesus flips the ethics of the world upside down. He supplants perfect revenge, holding on to that wrong that was committed to you forever with releasing it perfectly. As he willingly hung on the cross, absorbing the greatest injustice, not only that ever has happened, but ever could conceivably happen, Jesus prayed for the forgiveness of the ones who had wronged him and were killing him. Father, he prayed, forgive them, release them, remove the debt from their name, from their person. Was it real? Yeah, that's what forgiveness says by implication. It is a real thing. He's shrugging it off. He's hanging on a cross for it. 
That's what put him on the cross and was holding him to the cross. He's calling a sin a sin, but he's saying, I will take it upon me rather than holding it over your head forever. Jürgen Moltmann, a German theologian, wrote this about that prayer from the cross. He said, with this prayer of Christ, the universal religion of revenge, I love that phrase, that's what it is. Some kind of transcendent we think we're arriving at. The universal religion of revenge is overcome and the universal law of retaliation is annulled. In the name of the crucified from now on, only forgiveness holds sway. And notice this, folks. These are our marching orders. The Christianity that has the right to appeal to him, to Jesus, is a religion of reconciliation. I don't care how much culture war you're fighting. If we've forgotten that, we've forgotten kind of the whole heart of it. I don't care what other acts you think are righteous that you're doing, that I think I'm doing. If we kind of slough off this idea of forgiving people and reconciling in conflict, Arguably, that's, that's the heart. That, that is grace. That's grace in action. That's the good news, that we receive that, but then he says, instantly, and go be that. So we're abdicating the whole ball of wax. If in the name of whatever kind of sanctimony and righteousness, we forget that. Okay? Now, as we wrap up here, um, I want to, even though it's a little long, I want to read this uh, parable because forgiveness and reconciliation are our calling. In the parable of the unforgiving servant, that's this parable that Jesus tells right after saying to Peter, it's 77 times. It's like that's not enough, so he, goes, he wants to underscore with a story, and he tells this story to illustrate what that, what that looks like and where that can come from. And it, and it concludes with a warning that we must, look at the, here at the bottom here. I got it in highlighted red. Verse 35, he says, if you don't forgive the debts that are owed you, when you've been forgiven the debts you owed your heavenly father, your heavenly father is going to be like the master in this story who locks up his debtor and makes him stay in prison, makes him be enslaved, not free, forever, until he can pay it back. Well, he can't pay it back. And he says, that's what the Heavenly Father will do to every one of us if we do not forgive our brother. Notice this. What's it say? From your heart. Ugh, that's like another difficulty. It's one thing, go, oh, I'll, I'll do it. I don't feel it, but you know, you got to fake it till you make it sometimes. Duty. Better than nothing. But that's not what he says, is it? Your heart has to change. You really aren't going to be very forgiving for very long unless your heart has changed. So forgiveness and repentance, these are not like one-time acts as much as ways of life that you lean into increasingly. It's a heart status, a heart condition. So I'm going to read this. I'll read it really fast because most of us know this, and we're, we're getting short on time here. But I want you to look for this as we read, okay? Everybody just listen for this. How do we get forgiveness in our hearts? If forgiveness has got to be from the heart, how do we... How do we arrive at that place? How do we get it in our hearts? Look for that, clues to that as we read it. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, 
Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Wow. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. How do we get forgiveness in our hearts? Look at this. My debt was 10,000 talents, which the ESV margin says, you may have something different. People speculate on, but it's, it's, it's something like this. 20 years worth of wages. I don't know what your salary is. Multiply it, your, your annual salary by 20 years right now and ask yourself whether you would ever pay that debt back. Basically, he's saying it's unpayable. That's forgiven. The master's going to eat that. He'll pay it. He'll deal with it. Take it upon himself. And then that very guy who's been forgiven this enormous debt turns around and won't forgive one day's wage, $100, the average one-day wage for a laborer. How do we get forgiveness in our hearts? We get it by coming to appreciate the relative enormity of our own sins. It turns out that those who have trouble forgiving other people's sins also have trouble seeing the weight of their own sins. Last week's lesson and this week's lesson are inextricably connected. Unforgiving people are likely to be impenitent people because you can't really repent truly and deeply of things you don't really accept yet. Remember, part of it is owning it, right? That's what confession means. This guy can't see that his sins are that big a deal. He's forgotten the relative you know, disparity between the enormous sins that he has in his record against God versus the relatively minor amount that other people could possibly owe another human being. So to develop forgiving hearts, we have to start appreciating the relative enormity of our own sins against God. That will not only make other sins against us appear small by comparison and make them more easily forgivable, it will also drive home to our hearts the preciousness of the gift that is God's forgiveness. The fact that he literally took the debts we owe, debts associated with our sins, and put them on himself at Calvary. He's calling us to do nothing less than that. Thanks a lot.